0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They are the centerpieces of President Biden's domestic agenda.
1: It turns out that Colorado had an enormous amount of influence in the drafting of, of both the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill.
0: What's the effect of that influence? We'll ask our public affairs team just as the House passes Build Back Better then, the Colorado Rapids' historic run to the top of their conference isn't just a testament to the players. Along the 6
1: shot one Rapids! Acosta to Lewis!
0: It's also a comeback story for head coach Robin Fraser. He's a finalist for Coach of the Year, and he's our guest. Then from soccer to baseball, an interview we can't forget as Colorado Matters turns 20 about an all-black team in Colorado Springs that kept winning in the face of segregation.
2: I donated my car.
0: I donated my car. I
2: donated my car.
0: I donated my car to CPR. I needed a new transmission and a lot of other work. This was a great way to make a large gift. It was a car that we had loved. It was time for it to go on to its next life. It was time for the car to get off the street anyway. I knew that it would make me feel okay about saying goodbye. And
3: it was time to give it to a good cause. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Somebody gave me a call.
4: They came and picked it up. It's easy to donate your cart. CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Build Back Better, that roughly $2 trillion package that invests in everything from health care and child care to fighting climate change, it has passed the House. Now the U.S. Senate takes up the measure. That will be neither easy nor breezy. We were curious just how influential Colorado's nine members of Congress have been in shaping the president's domestic agenda these days. And it's something that CPR's Andrew Kenny has looked into. He's on our public affairs team. Hi, Andy. Hello from my house. From your house. Yes, not the U.S. house. Before we get into where Colorado fits into all of this, let's just get a quick refresher on the two bills that make up President Biden's big agenda items Build Back Better, which I just mentioned, and uh, the
4: infrastructure bill. Sure. So President Joe Biden just this week signed the first one, which is the roughly $1 trillion infrastructure bill. Uh, People may know by now it's focused on roads, bridges, ports, rail, etc. A lot of physical infrastructure. And this one, that one actually had a fair amount of Republican support in the Senate and some in the House. took a long time to come together, though. And that was mostly because Democrats have also been trying to pass this Build Back Better Act, which is set to involve even more money for what's being described as more social policy, social spending, such as universal preschool, climate adaptation, healthcare, and a bunch of other stuff. That one is just past the House, but it's far from a done deal in the Senate.
0: Democrats had to adjust their timetable after a record-breaking speech by the house minority leader more than eight hours long overnight sort of a
4: filibustery tool indeed but they ultimately still did vote it through this morning through the house Uh, again that's not the last step but it's a big one that resulted from months of fighting and negotiation within the party if you look at the negotiations on this pair of bills together you can actually see a lot of the Colorado delegation's fingerprints, uh, a lot of stuff that they got in there, a lot of their their work on these bills. And that's according to Colorado Senator Michael Bennett.
1: It turns out that Colorado had an enormous amount of influence in the drafting of of both the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill.
0: What does that influence look like, though? Like, What do we really know about what they
1: did?
4: Well, we know what they took credit for.
1: So <laughs> I'll start with the uh,
4: other Senator, John Hickenlooper. He is part of this group of bipartisan senators, there are 22 of them, and they helped to put together the terms of that first deal, the infrastructure package. Some of his fellow kind of delegation members talked him up a bit. Uh, When we asked Looper, he didn't take too much credit since, as he says, he's just a freshman senator.
3: I tried to be part of the discussions where I thought I could add value, and I didn't
4: I don't feel the need to go and hijack the conversation and beat my chest and say, well, wait about, you know, I was mayor for eight years. I was governor for eight years. You know, that seniority doesn't count anything in the Senate. He did take credit for one little piece of the infrastructure legislation that had to do with electric car charging stations.
0: Okay, that's on the Senate side. What about the House side? How involved were Colorado's Democratic representatives?
4: Oh, man, pretty closely, Ryan. This was a big moment for Representative Joe Neguse, who is tight with the kind of progressive part of the House Caucus, and he's been lifted up as one of the people who helped get progressives on board with the current approach. Uh, they had really not wanted to separate separate out these two bills, uh, but Neguse helped them to, helped to convince them to move forward on infrastructure with the promise that this Build Back Better bill would follow pretty quickly. And actually, that is happening this morning, as we see.
0: Indeed. Uh, so it sounds like Nagus in particular had a pretty significant role here.
4: Yeah, as you know, there, there are a lot of members in Congress of Orange 35, so it can take a lot to stand out. But Nagus's efforts, basically, he got a mention by the White House chief of staff. Uh, it's been widely circulated, reinforces this perception that he's somebody who's continuing to gain influence and can serve as a bridge between progressives and House leadership. Uh, here's how he actually described it
2: i would just simply say that a large part of uh, of the work that we have been doing over the course of the last few weeks is really rebuilding trust
4: he's talking there about trust between democrats mm. because it's been a long and stressful process for them he's also taking credit for winning about 15 billion dollars for the climate conservation corps in the build back better proposal
0: you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and from CPR's public affairs team, Andrew Kenny joins us just as the US House has passed that $2 trillion some odd dollar Build Back Better package. And on the heels of the signing of the infrastructure bill, we're asking what role Colorado's delegation has played. Let's turn uh, to which Colorado proposals are included in these bills. So you mentioned Hickenlooper's electric vehicles legislation. The Goose has that climate core. Uh, Are there other standouts, Andy?
4: Yeah, maybe the biggest standout, especially in this Build Back Better bill, is one from Senator Michael Bennett, and it is the child tax credit expansion. Hmm. And that's a complicated thing that affects tons of people So historically, you know, American families have been eligible for child tax credits. You kind of get a discount on your taxes and that can come for each child in your household. And the value has kind of floated up and down for uh, many years. But most recently during the pandemic, Bennett helped push that up to as much as $300 per month per kid as part of the emergency response. And that money has been being paid out monthly, not just at tax time. So that's a huge impact. Permanently expanding that credit has been a longtime goal of Bennett's because he argues it's one of the most obvious, effective ways to get kids out of poverty, just give their families money. And he's been one of the major people pushing this. So he saw this Build Back Better bill as the way to get a permanent expansion of this major social policy. And what's happening with it? Well, uh, it's not permanent so far. It's been a huge fight within the party. We've seen his proposal cut back it could be even dropped altogether. I started to ask him in an interview about the biggest obstacle to this, and the question didn't even get out of my mouth before he answered.
1: I can, I can say two words. Joe Manchin. You know, that is the honest answer. Joe and I have a disagreement about the merits of the child tax credit, and that is why we have not been able to um, extend it permanently, even though that's a priority of the administration. It's a priority of the the majorities in the senate and in the house he just fundamentally disagrees with my position i respect his position it's a he, he's taken a principled position but i'm just going to have to overcome it at some point
4: uh, joe manchin obviously the conservative democratic senator who's really uh, had a lot of power over shaping this bill because of his resistance to embracing some of these big spending items uh, michael bennett said that he's basically had to beg joe manchin to include anything from this expanded tax credit, uh, and already because of Mansions' resistance, the expanded credit's been rolled back to just a year mm. of expansion instead of several years. Bennett did get one potentially permanent win. Uh, the proposal, as it stands now, would permanently give millions more low-income families access to the child tax credit, even if it's not always such a higher value.
0: Senator Manchin from West Virginia, of course. As for Colorado Republicans, they really haven't been involved in these bills except to serve as critics, right?
4: Exactly. A handful of House Republicans voted for the infrastructure bill. None of them were from Colorado. Uh, Republican representatives didn't respond to my interview requests, but they have been extremely critical, especially of this Bill Back Better proposal that passed the House today.
0: What have they focused on in particular?
4: They focused on the fact that the Congressional Budget Office says it will add hundreds of billions of dollars to the deficit over the next decade because it's not completely paid for. They also oppose expanding some of the role of the IRS and some provisions that benefit people who are in the country without legal immigration status. Representative Ken Buck called it unacceptable. Representative Doug Lamborn said it was a, quote, scam and big government socialism.
0: Andy Kenny from our public affairs team, the midterm elections are coming up next year. So how, how do you oh, think yes. these big spending packages might play into that?
4: Well, it's a really different political landscape already than it was earlier this year. The president's approval ratings are down. There's a lot more talk about inflation, which Republicans are trying to connect to government spending. And Republicans are very, very critical of this Build Back Better proposal in particular. So I asked Representative Ed Perlmutter, a Democrat, about this since he's got a much more competitive district on the front range now, and Republicans are already lining up attacks on him over the new spending. And, you know, his plan is to basically do what members of Congress always do with these big spending packages. Talk about new money for education and all the stuff he got for this area, like money for research facilities and, of course, one really classic bipartisan priority, roads.
2: There's a lot of road miles in there. There are a lot of bridges in there there will be a lot of construction which will attach to all those road miles. So I know whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an unaffiliated voter, you're going to appreciate better roads.
0: Uh, we also spoke with Representative Perlmutter earlier this week on Colorado Matters. He says he'll seek re-election. Senator Bennett is also up for election next year. Does this vote have him worried?
4: I asked him about what's next for, yeah, Democratic Party, their election hopes. And he argued that just this act of getting stuff done would boost voters' confidence in both Democrats and in the government.
1: So I hope people are going to be able to see that and say to themselves, we can't give up on democracy. We've got too much at stake. The world needs us to succeed because we are the the best offer out there in terms of democracy. And so I'm actually feeling you know, pretty good about where the country is headed. Um, and, I, and I think we'll, we'll obviously think more about the elections in the in the new year
4: what comes next Andy they still have to pass this Build back better bill yeah. uh, you know the house agreed on its version but it still has to get through the Senate which is a tough road and then maybe even come back to the house after that real question of what does Congress do next Bennett wants to turn uh Senator Bennett wants to, Senator Bennett wants to turn to the China competitiveness bill he's still holding out some hope for a voting rights bill although it seems like they would have to basically get rid of the filibuster to do that. Mm. And then there's just lots of priorities for different Democrats that were part of this at some point, but didn't make the cut. And on top of all that, you see the madness of the midterm elections really start to roll in and change the political atmosphere yet again.
0: Thanks for the perspective from your house, Andy. Thank you. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny, highlighting Colorado's role in advancing and thwarting the president's domestic agenda. The sound of success as the Colorado Rapids, the state's top professional soccer club, capped off their 2021 Major League Soccer regular season, One for the record books most points and wins in franchise history and for the first time the squad finished first in the western conference head coach robin frazier is on the line congratulations coach twice over because you're also a finalist for mls coach of the year
3: thank you thank you very much Uh, it's been an incredible year so far and we We've certainly enjoyed it, but we have a little bit more work to do.
0: Yeah, there's so far an operative term there. The team hosts a playoff game at Dick's Sporting Goods Park in Commerce City, Thanksgiving Day. It's a first for soccer in the U.S. Um, You've led your squad to a a second consecutive playoff berth in just your second full season with the club. How would you say you and your players do it?
3: Uh, Collectively. Uh, This is a league where, certainly when the league started, it was about, or they certainly felt like it was about, you need big stars to put people in the stands and you need big stars to have good teams. And uh, as the league has evolved, uh, that model has changed somewhat. It's not big old stars anymore. Now it's big young stars. And at the end of the day, a lot of teams are spending uh, quite a bit of money to get that special player uh there are a couple of players in the league that are somewhere between six and nine million dollars a year and we don't have anyone like that hmm. uh, we don't have anyone with that kind of a price tag i think we have very good players but we don't have players that have um you know that that certainly have that sort of pedigree and what we've done is we just decided that uh, we feel like if we do things collectively then um the sum of the the parts can be greater, and as of now, uh, we've we've had a decent year, and we've had a decent run with that.
0: Decent, you. I think you're underplaying it, maybe just a little bit. I'm sure that you're just sick of people bringing up Ted Lasso with you, but that really is the plot <laughs> of Ted Lasso: the the collectivity and the idea that a team can actually suffer when it focuses too much on its stars and not on the collective. You do have a US national team player in Kellen Acosta and a Canadian national team player in Mark Anthony Kaye, but you have achieved great success while having one of the lowest total salaries for your players in the entire league. That's not an easy thing. It does seem like a, an underdog story. Do you think that's a good way to mm-hmm. to frame it?
3: Yeah, I think that um, I think that's probably fair because that is—it's such a neat talking point right now. How we don't spend money, not like other teams, but we're still somehow in the position we are. And I like the fact that um, it seems to be such a bamboozling topic for everyone, and for us, we just really feel like. Um, this is what it is. We are where we are. And we just want to focus on having good players, good people, um, unselfish players. And the team really is is uh, is a product of that, a very unselfish group. And it's funny you bring up Ted Lasso. I just watched it. Okay. I've been hearing about it for so long. And I just watched it probably within the last uh, month or so. And at first I thought, well, just the whole premise of an American coach, an American football coach coaching in England, uh, and the grief that must go along with that. It was such a really funny premise. But what I've found, and I've talked to some of my assistant coaches, I think we watch Ted Lasso through a slightly different lens than Mm. the average person. And I find a lot of what they do to be, while comical and somewhat corny, to be not that far from home. And uh, it's been a really interesting process of watching that and thinking about how we relate to some of the issues that they have. And uh, it's just, it's more than just a comedy to me, but I love it. I think it's great.
0: <laughs> and football is life.
3: Football is life. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have a player, uh, Nico Mosquita, who is a Uruguayan and has the most unbelievable bright light inside him he is he is a joyous person to be around and he is joyous every single day and we actually our strength and conditioning our, our performance coach said a while back that he was telling me about Ted Lasso and telling me about this character who is just happy he's just the most happy-go-lucky person the happiest spirit and he talked about the football his life and it's actually become a thing on our team now, around Nico Mesquita. <laughs> It'll be, you know, we'll be going through a training session and Nico will do something well, and everybody goes, football is live.
0: <laughs> this has become something of a it's refrain among the Rapids. Yeah. We're speaking with head coach, Robin Fraser. Okay, so let's hear what some of your players have said about you getting picked as finalist for coach of the
5: year. He's been that leader for the group. You know, we've got a young group here, or we have done over the last two years. Uh, the way he goes about it on the training field, he's made every single player better. He's really transformed this team into an elite an elite team and we're a
0: contender now. He's really brought this team together and uh, I think that's what a lot of us will look back at the end of this year, hopefully lifting a cup is that so many guys contributed and you know, we, we can't control that. That's the coach and I think that's why this locker room's so good and I think it doesn't matter who we go up against. He always seems to have a game plan that, you know, is in place to to beat the opposition and it's always so detail oriented. So that was Englishman and Rapids captain Jack Price, Jonathan Lewis, and Cole Bassett, homegrown player who came up through Colorado youth soccer. Uh, I, I want to focus on that idea that you always have a game plan. We heard. Do you draw up game plans? Um, do you just explain your vision to your players? Is this floating around in your head?
3: <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a an elaborate, time consuming process. Uh, I always joke with the assistant coaches that Tuesday, Wednesday, sometimes Thursday, I don't sleep a wink because I'm bound and determined to figure out the best way to play against the upcoming opponent and um, the best defending scheme, the best attacking scheme, and then to figure out what players fit. And um, our coaches, I have the most unbelievable coaching staff. You know, you mentioned uh, being up for coach of the year. That has so much to do with the staff and uh, I definitely sit here and I get a lot of credit for what's happening with the team, but the staff is incredible and we spend a tremendous amount of time. They spend a tremendous amount of time even on their own with individual tasks, but we get together and we have very, very long conversations about the ways that we think we should play the best ways to go about it. And it's a very collaborative effort. And uh, usually by friday the day before the game thursday or friday we have some sort of a game plan and uh we just work on it for a few days and um so far it's 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 been more good than bad i'll say that
0: and when does the sleeping happen uh
3: december <laughs> 10th to january 10th. <laughs> yeah okay off season off season
0: <laughs> yeah This is your second time around in MLS. You coached a team in L.A. for a couple of years. You were an assistant coach with some other teams in Salt Lake, New York, Toronto. Tell us something you learned from those earlier experiences that's proven helpful now.
3: Uh, Here's the biggest lesson I learned when I went from I started at Real Salt Lake and Real Salt Lake had a team very similar to this Colorado team. Hmm. Uh, No big superstars. Uh, very collective in how they went about things, very humble team, and we ended up winning a championship in 2009. So then I, uh, in 2011, I got the head coaching job at Chivas, as you just mentioned, and my feeling was this was a, an organization that would definitely had a number of challenges, and I knew that going in, and I just thought to myself, well, I'll just go in, and it really doesn't matter what the organization's like, we just go in and coach the players up, and get them all motivated, get them going in the right direction, and I'll have the same sort of success I did here and at Salt Lake. And it took me maybe about two weeks, three weeks, to learn the best lesson that's carried me throughout my coaching career since,
0: sure.
3: which is everyone is not you. Meaning you think you know what everyone wants because you know what you liked as a player and the things that motivated you, and you go in, naively thinking, I'll just do the things that I like to do. And this is a reason why. And you know, for sure, they're going to all be on board. And I quickly came to realize that every group is different. And uh, every group has its own unique challenges. And the bottom line is that, as I said, everyone is not you. You need to find out how to motivate players. You need to find out uh, what sort of environment you've got and what sort of environment you want to create. And there's so many things that I learned just within that first couple of weeks at Chivas. And um, uh, it's certainly one of the lessons that has carried me throughout uh, my coaching
0: career since. Mm. The idea that we so often filter the world through our own lenses and that that isn't- 100%. Always the, the best way to approach it. You know, before coaching, you had an illustrious playing career yourself, including with the Colorado Foxes, which came before MLS started. You were a tenacious defender. You were re- recently honored as one of the 25 greatest MLS players of all time by the league. Uh, on the international level, you earned more than two dozen caps, the term for appearing, uh, you know, f- with the U.S. men's national team. You are a native of, of Kingston, Jamaica. And I'm just curious, uh, briefly, how did your path as a youngster take you to pro soccer?
3: Uh Great question. And there are a couple of ways that I always answer that. I liked soccer as a kid in Jamaica and elementary school soccer, uh, prep school soccer in Jamaica was so widely followed. I was on one of the two best teams in Kingston. And we probably had, and I could be wrong, but I think probably around 2000 people at our games, it was lined three or four rows deep. And that's how Avidly it was followed. So I, my initial soccer experience was certainly <clears throat> one with a lot of fanfare and a lot of excitement and that sort of thing. So that started it. But I remember my dad taking me to the national arena in Jamaica in 1974 during the World Cup. and I think we went to three games. It was either two or three games. Mm-hmm. But I left those games so wide-eyed, loving every single thing about playing everything, single thing about high-level soccer, international soccer, the World Cup, and I was absolutely hooked at that point. My mom says she remembers me saying I want to be a professional soccer player one day. And she patted me on the head and said, oh, that's such a nice dream for a young boy to have. (laughs) Uh, So then we moved to the States in uh, 78. And uh, my dad, um, he started the first chapter of ayso which is a national recreational uh recreational soccer organization
0: i i and know it well i was chapter. in it myself okay. yeah
3: Ah, okay <clears throat> so we he brought the first one to miami so that i had a place to play which was incredibly um thoughtful and kind of him to do that and then he coached me, and I made his life miserable for about two years um, <laughs> because I was the precocious kid who thought I knew everything. Uh, but it certainly set me on a path of playing here. Um, and I, even throughout my youth years, I didn't play really, really serious soccer. I played with my friends, and I played on a team that was okay, but not a great team. And not till I landed in college did I really realize how hard you have to work and the requirements and the demands to be a good player. And, um, luckily I caught the speed of that pretty quickly. And shortly thereafter, I was, I was in the, in the U S national team pool, uh, which was again, another huge jump for me, just coming from a background that was really about playing with my friends. But I was, I was extremely fortunate, extremely, extremely fortunate. I did well at FIU. In fact, in fact I got recruited to FIU because my best friend wanted to go to FIU. And uh, this was a coach's insurance policy to get him. That's how sought after I was
0: <laughs> uh, in In so just the last that, few moments, I just want to note uh-huh. that you have a diverse team. It's a diverse league, a diverse global sport. But soccer is often one that reflects the tensions and divisions of society. Uh, it is also true that the fraternity of black coaches is small. So, I, I just wonder what insights, before we go, uh, as a black man in America, you have now that you're a head coach in MLS?
3: I think one of the biggest things that you have to do if you're a black coach who has aspirations to go to higher levels, one of the biggest things is I think with the attention uh, being uh, shot, with everything that's being uh, where society is today the attention that's being cast on this now, there are going to be opportunities available. And the biggest thing you can do is really dive deep into your craft and become very proficient at what it is you do. And if it's uh, soccer, then it's become as proficient as you can in understanding formations and tactics and how they all match up and what systems work well against what systems and what are the keys to that and it's really try and try and get your fundamental knowledge base as as high as possible and uh I'm a big believer in preparation. Uh you don't know exactly where opportunities are going to come but I think if you spend a lot of your time preparing then you're in pretty good shape, you know. I'll tell you a quick story. I used to
0: Very briefly coach. I'm so sorry we just have a few seconds.
3: Okay. Uh I I Was interviewed a number of times over the years and at times i i felt like it was about filling a quota and i could have been turned off and not taken the interviews but for me it was an opportunity to work on the craft of delivering my my uh my vision and i did so many interviews over the years and as a result i got better and better at presenting Mm. and eventually i ended up getting the job so the key for me is to be prepared. Be prepared and certainly sniff out every, every opportunity that you can.
0: Colorado Rapids head coach Robin Fraser, whom I could spend a day talking with, they'll kick off their MLS Cup playoffs run at Dick's Sporting Goods Park on Thursday, November 25th. Again, that'll be the first one ever played on Thanksgiving Day. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
1: A more reliable CPR stream on your phone. An easy way to tell CPR what you're thinking. Better browsing.
2: These are just some of the new and improved features of the new Colorado Public Radio app. To get the latest
0: from CPR News, CPR Classical, and Indy 1023, update to the new version
2: on your phone or tablet. Get the new Colorado Public Radio app in the App Store and in Google Play. Search for Colorado Public Radio. This is
0: Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sometimes you learn the most about yourself when you're around people who aren't like you. That's what some students found working on school projects with peers in Iraq and Morocco. But teens in the World Affairs Challenge virtual exchange also found they have more in common than they thought. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine visited the students at Clear Creek High School in Evergreen.
2: The students in Tina Matthews' third period class aren't listening to her. They're listening to a teenager 5,000 miles away.
3: There is also a strong link between food waste and climate change.
2: 15-year-old Moroccan student Rita Isami is talking about how to reduce food waste at restaurants.
0: Good. American tea. Um, another way is donating the food. Restaurants could donate.
2: American Max Menard is on the same team as Rita. The virtual exchange is a project of the nonprofit World Denver. It connects high school students in different countries to collaboratively develop solutions to local problems related to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. But there's more, says World Denver's Matt Bitten.
1: The overarching goal is to create mutual understanding between the students from one side of the world and students on the other side of the world.
2: Students choose from some of the UN goals like responsible consumption and production, climate action, life below water, and life on land. They research the problem, work with nonprofits on solutions, and can apply for grants to work on service projects on the ground. 15-year-old Colin Hendrickson says his team chose desertification, brought on by a lack of rainfall, because it's happening in both countries.
0: In Iraq, it, it makes
3: it so it can't grow crops. It increases the air temperature, which, you know, affects everyone. Here in the US, specifically in Colorado, it dries out the trees and the plants and increases the fire
1: danger here, which is a big problem.
2: The American students couldn't believe how well the students abroad spoke English. Colin was also struck by the passion and the dedication shown by the Iraqis.
0: It wasn't just do the basics and then move on. It was really you know diving deep into solving the problem, the research within the problem.
2: Whereas Colin came up with a simplistic solution, the Iraqis broadened his thinking about problem solving.
0: But they came with different perspectives and said, well, you know, what if we
3: actually help replant? What if we reach out to these local organizations?
2: It wasn't always smooth sailing. At the outset, Zach Bennett says teenagers on both sides were just shy. One of our administrators would ask a question and it would be just dead silence for a solid ten minutes. <laughs> And there were occasionally misunderstandings. 14-year-old Presley King's group worked on the endangered Iraqi marshes. At one point, the Iraqi team expected more research from the Americans. But instead, the Colorado group had been focused on forging community partnerships. They got a little frustrated with us. She says the Iraqi youth were straightforward, more direct.
5: Like get to the point and we kind of we'll we'll get there eventually
2: <laughs> the cultural differences were challenging sometimes
5: they didn't really understand that we had to do homework on top of this project along with like some of us work on the weekends and do sports But Presley says with the help
2: of a facilitator, they began communicating more, responding within 24 hours, posting their work on Google Classroom, and they selected a team leader. That really helped. In fact, the whole experience of working with the Iraqi youth taught 14-year-old Cadence Jennings
5: something about herself. Like, I definitely need to work better at communicating what needs to be said. Thank
2: you, I think we're good, yeah. Students wrap up their final videos on Friday. Thank you. I
6: wish you all the luck.
2: (laughs) Good morning to people in Colorado.
1: Good afternoon to people in Morocco and good evening to people in Iraq. Thank you
2: for joining us. On Saturday, Um, students meet with judges to talk about their projects. Have you connected? with the people who will be planting the trees uh, you know, and... Well, what's stopping them from cutting down the trees again? And so that's when we kind of shifted our focus. To our you know, aim is actually kind of to gain people's attention, no matter what their age is... no matter. A winner is declared. A project on cleaning contaminated water in the canals around Basra, Iraq. The second remedy is called the PNG purifier. In the end, 15-year-old Moroccan Rita Asami says he learned to respect other cultures. This
6: was a good experience for me that
1: I learned uh, to understand the other sculptures, even though they are very
2: different from mine. Colin Hendrickson, also 15, found more similarities than differences. Which I
3: guess was a great thing to to see firsthand because it totally ends any pre-existing stereotypes or misconceptions that you may have.
2: And the project made some students ready to hit the road. Zach Bennett's. Because they had to learn our language and I want to try to go there and learn theirs. I'm Jenny Brindin, CPR News.
0: Major League Baseball was all white until Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947. Still, most teams didn't integrate until the 1950s, so it's no surprise that in 1949, the Colorado Springs City League was segregated. The Brown Bombers were the only all-black team in that otherwise white league, and that year, again 1949, the Bombers bested all those white teams to win the championship. Let's listen back to my 2009 conversation with players Joe Morgan and Jesse Vaughn. It's a favorite from our archives, as Colorado Matters marks two decades. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you with us. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jesse, take me back to Colorado Springs in the 1940s. You actually both grew up there, but what was it like to be a young black man there at that time?
6: Uh, The Ku Klux Klan ruled this city and uh, there were places we could go and there were places we could not go and uh, I recall one incident we had two five and ten cent stores here in town but one of them had a snack bar in it and uh, we could go in there but we couldn't sit down if we wanted a drink of water, they'd give it to us in a glass. And after you got through drinking, they'd turn around and break the glass and, in the garbage can. Mm. And if you wanted a sandwich, they'd give it to you, but you could have to stand up and eat it. And you gave them the plate back, they take it and throw it in the garbage can. So they finally wised up and said, well, now, wait a minute. We have to replace all of this. So then they started serving us in paper plates and paper cups. <laughs>
0: Joe, do you have uh, recollections like this?
6: Uh,
5: so somewhat, but Jesse's a couple of years older than I am, and, uh, and that's things were, were maybe a little bit better for me than it was for him. But uh, we used to go to the movies on Sundays, and one Sunday we see all the kids that we were in school with going down to Walgreens to eat. So one night I said, hey, guys, let's go down there and get something to eat. Well, they wouldn't serve us. So that Monday, I says, well, I'm going back down there. So there was four or five of us went back down there. So we sat up there and we ordered cheese sandwiches and some milkshakes. Well, they filled them full of salt. So they said, that'll be 10 cents or 15 cents, whatever the going price was at the time. And uh, no, we refused to pay. So they called the police on us. And this one officer took a taste of that sandwich and the milkshake, and says, I wouldn't pay for it either. <laughs> he says, you boys go on home. end of that. But, you know, like in school, we couldn't... Uh, the only sport we could participate in was track. Mm-hmm. Any contact sports, no. Football, no. Basketball, no. Uh, little things like this. Well, how did you
0: then come to play in... This baseball team, the the I, as I understand it, the Brown Bombers formed in 1948. That's what is that a, a year after Jackie Robinson gets in into the major leagues?
5: We were, you know, a bunch of young kids. You know, like even when we were 10, 11, 12 years old. We all played, and they had the north end, the south end, and the west side. And we all just came together and says, "Hey, one team." And uh, so after we banded together with the Guys from the north and south sides they came up with the idea, we're going to be the Brown Bombers. So we just, it all in, evolved into that, the Brown Bombers. Because we were sort of excluded from playing on the white teams, we just formed our own team. And we got fortunate, we won the city championship in 49-50. And Joe, can you explain to me
0: a little bit about the Brown Bombers team? I mean, because at this point, you guys are out of high school. And, I mean, is it, is it pro? Is it semi-pro? Help me understand
5: that. Well, we were, we were considered semi-pro. Um, we may have had a couple of young men that had just gotten out of high school. But by and large, we were semi-pro. We were playing baseball because we loved it, but we had jobs where we had to go to, it too.
0: And so how is that difference, just to, to, to be clear historically, Jesse, from, say, the Negro Leagues that people may be familiar well, with?
6: Well, we didn't get paid. We we played free. You know, we, we, we loved the game and uh, we came together and uh, we were so close together, I might say this, that whenever we took the field, we already felt like the game was ours. They had to beat us. They, we didn't have to beat them because we had already won. <laughs> that was our attitude. And then we played that way, and the folks saw that. And on Sundays and holidays when we played baseball in Monument Valley Park, you couldn't hardly get in there. It was so crowded. We played teams from Fort Carson, had a couple of teams. Peterson Field had a couple of teams. And they had professional ball players on their teams, and we beat them. And when we beat those teams with those professionals, they said, these guys must be good. No, ain't no must be. We are good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what positions did you play? Joe, how about you?
5: Uh, first base
6: and second base.
0: First base and second base. And Jesse?
6: Catcher or could play outfield or pitcher if they had to.
5: Well, did, Joe, did you ever have teams that refused to play with you? No, because it, we were in what we call the City League. It was sponsored by the city. And then we would play outside of the leagues by going to various other little towns around Colorado. But no, nobody ever refused to play us. I know that after we won the championship in uh, 49, well, they had this one team that they thought they were a bunch of hot shots. (laughs) We beat them. So the next year, they decided they didn't want to be in the league because we showed them up.
0: Jesse, were were the stands segregated? So I mean, did did white no, folk?
6: They was, they was mixed. No, they they were mixed. Uh-huh. Uh And on Sunday, they were all mixed. You know, over in Monument Valley Park, we were here before the Sky Sox came. Uh, they gave us credit for keeping baseball alive in Colorado Springs. Now, when the Sky Sox came, well, that kind of put us out of business. So then our team dissolved.
0: We should say and, that the Sky Sox—that was this—is a professional minor league team that came in about nineteen.
6: 19- when they first came here, yeah, they were minor league. They came here from Hawaii, and they're uh, right now they're the farm club for the Colorado Rockies.
0: What were the uniforms like? Do you guys remember
5: Jesse?
6: Our, our uniforms—hand me downs. Uh,
5: no, we we got some new uniforms, but they were wool. Oh man, those things were hot. <laughs> Nothing like the modern day uniforms. Mm. Hot and bulky, sort of. See, the weird, how we got those uniforms, we went around to different merchants in town and bummed money. Is, is that a good word to say? Uh, it got money off of them, and they've sponsored us. Tell me about any memories you guys
0: have of touring the state. Because as you've mentioned, you went all over to play in smaller communities.
5: Well, we, we really didn't, at least I can recall, we didn't have a whole lot of trouble when we traveled. We went down to Trinidad. You know, we were welcomed with open arms. Lamar, Colorado, uh Out at Rush. Uh, some of them said we had some trouble out at Rush, but I don't recall that either.
6: Grand Junction.
5: And Grand Junction, they opened us they welcomed us with open arms. We went over to Grand Junction, I'll never forget that game because they had a pitcher that had just signed a contract with the New York Yankees out of Denver and they beat us 2 to 1. Oh but, but it, you know it's a real good game but naturally we couldn't uh, go to Grand Junction and stay overnight so we traveled all night and got there to, de- to play the game the next day and after we played the game we had to get in our cars and come on back because uh, motel or hotel facilities were off limits at the time when you're young you don't let you didn't think about that t- type of thing too much we were just wanting to play baseball and were the, were the crowds mostly black, mostly
0: white, nice nice and mixed at that point, or what?
6: Oh, nice and mixed. Yeah. You couldn't hardly, well, we couldn't say what the majority of, because if you look up in the stands, they're all over, everybody. And uh, those who couldn't sit in the stands were standing along the sidelines. There you go. And they were under the trees, even out in the outfield. They were all over the place. So uh, you might say the crowds were 50-50.
0: Right. I agree with that. The strange thing to to me here is that the stands are mixed, but it's divided on the on the field.
6: Right, right.
0: Yeah.
6: And 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 in and in the schools the same way. Now in, in gym classes we were all together in one gym class, but when it came to athletics on the varsity side, no, we were barred. We couldn't participate. That's right. Well, I want
0: you to take me to the day in 1949 when you win the championship. Uh, do you, what, what do you remember about that day, uh, Joe?
5: Well, to be honest with you, not a, not a great deal. Uh, we just won the championship and all H broke through out on, uh, uh, on the ball field. Everybody was so elated and happy because we beat a so-called powerful white team. That we weren't supposed to even have a chance with, of course. And after the game's over, we all go down to Dunkin's, have our little milkshakes or whatever.
0: Dunkin's is a black-owned uh, club and soda fountain uh, in town.
5: Well, it was a bar, nightclub, but they had a, a restaurant downstairs also. That's about all I can really recall.
0: Jesse, any any memories you want to share?
6: Uh, well, now there was there was a few white that were congratulated us. And uh, pat us on the back and say, "Well job, good job, well done." But the team we beat—they were oh, they were fighting mad. Yes. You know, they didn't want to shake hands or do anything. That's the kind of you know, what they were like. You know, because we had busted their bubble. To have us, you know, who were uh, we weren't recognized, who we didn't have any recognition from high school sports, to get together. And, and here we had to go out and, and uh, solicit to get uniforms. We had bats sometimes, the bat break, we couldn't buy new ones, so we'd just take some one-penny nails and drive in the bat handle to hold them together. And we would play a nine-inning ball game with only three balls. The whole game, it didn't have a three balls, that's what we used, the whole game, with just three balls. And then for us to come out there, you know, and then to wipe them out like we did, well, that was to them that was a disgrace. We might as well shot two or three of them, you know, or something like that.
5: You know, you mentioned that incident of a forty nine. Jesse just, just, just made me remember something. You know, they they almost had a riot out there that night because there was one player on the opposing team got kicked out of the ball game by the the umpire. Well, this one guy went behind the stands. And got a baseball bat, and he came around and it was sneaking up on the b- ump, and he was using the n word, lover. You know, you know what I'm saying, don't you?
0: I know what you're saying.
5: Yeah, ah, you're not such a lover, yeah, a lover.
0: So v- finally, you both stayed in Colorado Springs. mm mm-hmm. Um, I wonder why. I mean, is
5: that it's a different place today, I suppose. But uh...
6: well, I'm I'm a native. I was born in Walsenburg. And I was born right here in Colorado Springs. And my, my dad was a coal miner, and when the mines got slack in, in Walsenburg, we moved up here in 1929, and I've been here ever since. Now, I've been away a few times, but I always come back. I miss the mountains. I miss the climate, the atmosphere. It's just here, you know. And uh, Colorado Springs is just different than any other place I've been.
5: Joe? Well, I fell in love... For one thing, because I was actually wanting to go to Chicago. You know, little kids want to go to Chicago or young men, the big city. But I met my wife. and We've been married 59 years now. And uh, I got a job with the Postal Service. So I said, well, I'm putting food on the table and paying the rent. And like that old saying says, grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence. Well, I said, no, I think the grass is on this side. It looks good to me, so I just stayed here.
6: (laughs) Yes, that's me.
0: Well, thanks to both of you for being
5: with us. Well,
6: thank you for having us. You're quite welcome, sir, and appreciate it. I'm glad I was able to.
0: Jesse Vaughn and Joe Morgan, members of the Brown Bombers who won the Colorado Springs City Championship in 1949. That interview is a favorite as Colorado Matters turns 20. And this is our team... Carl Belick, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
2: Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher,
0: Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
2: Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill,
0: Pedro Lumbrano,
2: Patrice Mondragon,
0: Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and special thanks to Megan Verlee and John Daly. This is CPR News and KRCC.